Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you all for singing. Thanks for joining us as we declare uh, the praise of the Lord. Uh, One of the things that struck me as we were singing this morning is regardless of how we feel, God is still God. Regardless of what you're going through in life, regardless of what I'm going through in life, God does not cease to be God. If we don't feel something, that does not change who God is. God is still holy. God is still righteous. God is still just. God is still good. God is still gracious to us no matter what we face today. And I'm thankful in the ups and downs of this world that God changes not. Amen? Just imagine if God were to change like the daily headlines of the world. We would never know what to expect. So, um, let us, uh, let us jump into the passage this morning here in just a moment. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter uh, 1 this morning. We're going to make our way into chapter 2. Uh, it's, it's a great passage of text and um, sets the stage for a lot of what Paul is going to be arguing in the rest of chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, chapter 5. It all kind of runs together. It's a nice unity. Um, a little bit of context before we read our passage. Um, I'll remind you from last week where we did kind of a bit of an overview. Um, Paul is writing to churches in Galatia. This is likely, I think, uh, there's a whole bunch of discussion, which we talked about last week. Uh, I think this is likely churches in southern Galatia is, is likely where Paul is writing to. Uh, he's probably writing around the year 48, 49 AD. So we're a couple years after um, the death of Jesus. And um, he is writing to an audience who's composed of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. In in the early days of the church, um, the the, the church was predominantly Jewish because the church is birthed in Jerusalem uh, in in Acts, we find in Acts chapter 2. And it it happens at the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot, is when this, this begins to occur. And, uh, and so for the first several bit of, or the first little bit of time there, the, most of the faith of believing in Jesus is a Jewish thing. It's, it's a part of the Jewish religion. Not that it's um, the same as what every other Jew believed, but it's a bunch of people who see Jesus and they say, he is our Messiah. And as the message of Jesus' death and resurrection goes out to the world, it goes not just to the Jewish people, it goes to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So by the time Paul is traveling to places like southern Galatia, he's writing to people who were Jewish and people who were Gentile. He's he's writing to both individuals, but these people are brought together because of their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And he's writing to them in the book of Galatians, and he says in the first uh, little bit of chapter 1, he says, "Um, I'm amazed that you are so quickly, verse 6, turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. He's writing to people whom he knew, people who are followers of Jesus, and he's saying, 
Why are you turning to a different good news? Because there's only one true gospel. There is only one good news. And as Paul will address in various points in his letters in the New Testament, and also in Galatians, this good news is for all. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's for the Jewish people and for Gentiles. And then the call is, how do you walk this out? How do you live this in community? Is one of the things he'll address in this book. Um, you, could, you could think of it as this way. Um, Paul says in verse, um, where is it? Uh, he says it in verse 4 of chapter 1. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. You could think of Paul doing something like this. You have, on the one hand, you have a way of life that is characterized by all the things of the world. Paul calls it the present evil age, chapter 1, verse 4. But in chapter 6, you get towards the end of the book, he says, for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. And what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection is he has made a way to be reconciled to God going from the present evil age, going into being a new creation. Essentially what Paul is talking about throughout this book and really throughout much of the New Testament is that if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity has changed. Once you were lost, you were far from God, you were, um, found your identity in things like your credentials, your experience, your notoriety, you found purpose and meaning in I or in self and what we can muster up in our own. This is what it means to walk by the present evil age, and it has a whole bunch of other implications to it that Paul talks about in chapter 5. But Paul is essentially saying, that's what you walk if you're living in the present evil age. But because of the cross of Christ, you are now a new creation, which means your identity is completely reversed. You are now in Christ. You now have the presence of God within you through the Holy Spirit who dwells. You have the fruit of the Spirit that become more and more a part of your life. Because as the Holy Spirit works in you, he begins to work through you as you yield to him. And you get things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it results in this great truth. Glory is given to God because of the new creation. See, in, in the present evil age, walking according to the things of this world, what we seek to for ourselves oftentimes is glory. We seek accolades for ourselves, but in the new creation, it's not about our glory. It's about God's. It's about what God is doing. It's about God's redemptive purpose and God's redemptive work in our lives. And this happens as we are crucified in Christ. And we're going to look at that phrase a little bit more next week. But I want you to get what Paul is doing in this letter because he's essentially giving his hearers a reminder of what the gospel is and a reminder of who they are in light of what God has done for them. And he never wants them to forget this truth. So um, this chapter, what we are going to look at today is essentially asking the question, what does your life look like when it is taken over by God? What does your life look like when it's taken over by God? And in the first part of the passage today, um, Paul is going to be sharing his personal story of God's redeeming work. Glory be to God. And in the second part that we're going to look at today, um, Paul is going to um, describe God's work 
through him to take the message to the Gentiles. And so I've, I've entitled this message, Two Groups, One Gospel, because he's essentially talking about how the gospel comes to two different groups. You have Jewish and you have non-Jewish or Gentile. The gospel goes to both, but there's one gospel, even though different people like Paul are commissioned for different kinds of work. And so with all of that, just kind of as a background, would you stand with me, please? And let's read the text this morning. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, and we are going to read through 2, verse 10. So a little bit of a long reading here. Now I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree, and I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who called me from my birth, set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had, been, who, who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and I came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. And I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, now I'm not lying in what I write to you. God is my witness. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches in Christ. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because of the false brothers smuggled in, who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ, in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. All right, let's pray. Um, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, for how you teach us. And we pray, Lord, this morning um, that the truth of your word would be made clear to our minds and to our hearts that we might walk to the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together we say, amen. Please be seated.
All right, so we have in this passage, um, Paul begins by describing essentially what is the gospel, all right? He mentioned the gospel several times in the passage we looked at last week, and he picks right up there in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached to me is not based on human thought. In, in other words, Paul is saying he did not make up this gospel. So what is the gospel? Um, there's a couple varying ways you can describe it, but it basically comes down to this. The gospel is the once-for-all payment. You could insert the theological word atonement here. Once-for-all payment for sin to save people and to restore them in a relationship with God and each other. Okay? bit of a lengthy definition there, but it's important to note a couple things. It's payment. It's something that Jesus has done on behalf of humanity to pay for sin and all of sin's guilt, all of sin's shame, all of sin's action, because where there is sin, there has to be payment. And Jesus provides that payment. So once for all payment for sin to save people or to redeem people um, and restore them in relationship with God and with each other. Jesus does not just save us from sin so that we can go live our own life somewhere in a corner of the world. He calls us to himself and he redeems us so that we can walk in relationship with him. In other words, he is about redeeming and setting right what was broken back in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, what was broken was not just now they knew sin and they knew shame, is that their relationship with God was fractured. Where they could once walk with God in one way, they could no longer walk with God in that way because God is holy and set apart, and they were not. So, what is the gospel? Once for all, payment for sin to save people and restore them in relationship with God um, and with each other. But there's some principles that come off of this. One of the principles that that comes then as as we begin to look at the gospel and and we talk about, all right, so what does it mean to walk this out? Where do faith and works find their meeting? And I love what one, um, one person says, Dr. Randall Smith. He says this. He says, the gospel teaches us essentially this, that we do not earn a relationship with God through works. Why? Because it's a gift, and it's a gift to the undeserving. There's nothing that you or I could do to earn a relationship with God. It comes by God's grace. It comes by God's grace. But he says, but we do offer God our lives, and we seek to obey him in our walk now that we have been purchased by him. And so you have faith, and then you have faith that expresses itself in right living. And right living is never intended to replace God's gracious, redemptive work in your life. Rather, how you live is supposed to flow from that by working of God's Spirit within us. Galatians chapter 5. So um, that's what we talk about when we talk about new creations in Christ. Paul will say, we'll look at this next week in chapter 2, he'll say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, So for Paul, how to walk out something is not to go, okay, now that I'm saved, I can go do whatever I want. It's actually now that I have a relationship with God, I'm called into a whole new way of living that is based upon not the present evil age, but it's based upon a new identity. That's what he's trying to underscore here. 
And that is absolutely important, learning to walk or to live in the new identity we have in Christ. And one of the things Paul says in uh, verse 12 here is he says, um, I did not receive this from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul did not make this up, all right? This was not something that Paul contrived of his own um, abilities. Um, This is not something that he finds authority in within any sort of um, practice or tradition. It, It comes from God's revealed word, and most importantly, God himself who met Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul's story is an incredible, um, incredible picture of God meeting someone when they're going a very, very different way. Paul, Paul describes his life here in the next couple verses, how he was, um, he was very zealous in Judaism. It says in verse 13, uh, you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree, and I tried to destroy it. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries of my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And these couple verses, we get a glimpse about who Paul was before he became to know, uh, before he came into relationship with the Lord Jesus. He was very zealous. He was very religious. He was very observant. The word here, in the HCSB, it translates it, uh, my life in Judaism, or I advanced in Judaism. That word for Judaism there is a word that only occurs twice in the New Testament. It occurs in verse 13 and once in verse 14. And so there's a bit bit of understanding of what does he mean, I advanced in Judaism. Um, This is, I believe, a technical term. Uh, Paul's not talking about Judaism as a broad whole. He's talking about a particular movement within Judaism. And that movement is characterized um, by uh, the Judean way of belief in life, one commentary says. Um, When this word is first used, the the earliest uh, mention we have of it in the scholarly literature, in the Bible literature, comes from a book called Second Maccabees. Okay, this isn't part of the canon of scripture, but, but it comes from 2 Maccabees. It's from this Maccabean period, and the term first used there, which is about 200 years before the time of Paul, when it's first used, it's used in the context of rejecting paganism, re- re- rejecting Hellenism, and, and being very um, specifically intentioned to not accept things from the world, to, to keep one's life and one's walk incredibly pure. Right? It, it has this idea, according to one scholar, of, of referring not to Judaism in general, but to one party's program for defending the ancestral religion. Uh, within this context, the scholar contends that Paul uses this word in a particular way to differentiate a zealous lifestyle separate from normal religious observance in Judaism. And I think it's a pretty fair understanding. It's a very specific use of how he's using it here. And you can find that, too, by how he describes it. He advanced among other contemporaries and in an extreme degree. And he tried to destroy God's church because for Paul, before he comes to know Christ, he finds his identity a very particular way. He finds his identity in the traditions of his fathers. All right? That's what he says. I was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. What drove Paul was making sure he was faithful to the traditions. 
And so you have this map here, and it's a little bit hard to see, um, but I was trying to get the whole thing in. It was kind of tough. So if you look down at your bottom right, you'll notice that bottom point is Jerusalem. So, so Paul's in Jerusalem. He gets permission from Jerusalem leaders to go up into um, essentially persecute followers of Jesus up in Damascus. And so he travels north following the orange line. If you can just kind of see the orange line, it's way on that side. He goes up to Damascus. He goes up to Damascus. On that road somewhere, Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he says, Paul, or he says Saul, really. Uh, Saul is the Hebrew name of Paul, which is the Greek name of Saul, if that kind of makes sense. So you'll see different names depending on where you're at in the text. Um, He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? And the Lord responds, he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Paul thought he was being very faithful to the traditions of his ancestors. That was his goal. Keep the religion as pure as the driven snow. But what he missed in that is he missed God's heart. Because notice what it says. He was faithful and extremely zealous for the traditions of his ancestors, which means he was not extremely zealous for God. Because you can be incredibly zealous for religious things and completely miss God in the middle of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can go to church every week and not have a relationship with Jesus. That's not saying don't go to church every week. We actually like support that. Um, that doesn't mean don't live a moral life. You absolutely should. But when you find your identity in living a moral life and keeping yourself as far away from evil as possible, and not first and foremost in your identity in Jesus, you get things out of order. And it's so easy for so many of us to do. And this happened for Paul. He found his identity, I believe, in the traditions of his ancestors. Within this specific group, they sought to maintain this Jewish identity. We're going to keep this as pure as we can. But on this road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. And he, he realizes that while he'd been trying to be religious this entire time, he had missed faith. He had missed God's redemptive work in his life. And so he's going up to Damascus. Along the way, the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. And then we find that he takes a, a little trip. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he goes from um, Damascus. Um, and then he goes out to Arabia. Then he comes back to Damascus. And then he eventually comes back to Jerusalem. And then you'll see that yellow line. And that goes all the way up to Tarsus, up at the very top. Tarsus is Paul's hometown. We'll talk about that in a minute. The point is this. Um, we can be incredibly focused upon being religious. We can be incredibly focused on right conduct, and we, and we should be. You know, our lives as followers of Jesus should look very different from the world around us. They should. But that's not where we find our identity. Our identity is found in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then because of that, as a result of that, we have chapters like chapter 5 in Galatians where Paul is going to say and we'll study this in a few weeks, he's going to say in verse 16, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. Because you can be really religious and still gratify the desires of your flesh. Paul wants us to know that the the problem is not necessarily that he kept kosher. The problem is not that he kept Shabbat. The problem is not that he was circumcised. Those were not bad things to Paul. Those were keeping God's commands for him, an observant Jew. 
but when he found his identity in those things that God had called him to, things became out of place. It's not that his heart, it's that his heart was not zealous for God and walking in relationship by faith. And, and just to apply a little bit, even now, are we committed to God? Think about this for yourself. Are, are, are you committed? Are we committed to God first? Or are we committed to our traditions? Right? Are we committed to God first in our life? Or are we committed to our traditions? Again, our traditions may not be bad. They may not even be wrong. But when we're committed to our traditions instead of God, we have the apple cart turned upside down. Are we committed to God or to our tradition? Are we committed to our political ideology? Or are we committed to God? Are we committed to our degrees and all the things that come behind our name? Are we committed to God? What drives who we are? How would we know that? In uh, Galatians 5, which we, we were, we're not going to look there in depth right now, but um, Paul talks about this work of the Spirit. And I read this to you, you know, um, he, he says there in verse 16, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. He goes on to give um, a list of the fruits of the Spirit. All right, These are not the fruits of something that we can create in and of ourselves. It's something that, we, that, that occurs in us as we yield ourselves to God and what God wants and as we walk in relationship with God. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. One of the checkpoints for us on whether or not we are experiencing a walk with God is, God, am I, do I see those things in my life? Do other people see those things in my life? Is my life more characterized by love? Am I choosing to walk in joy and experiencing joy more? As we see the works and the fruits of the Spirit increasing in our life, um, that is a a good picture that we're likely on the right track and we're forming ourselves properly in the identity that we have in Christ and walking in relationship with him. Now, that doesn't change who you are. In other words, um, going back to this, if you're in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. He says this in 2 Corinthians. If you're a new creation, you don't go back into being an old creation. But if you see other things, not fruits of the Spirit, increasing in your life, it is good practice to ask, all right, God, help me discern where I'm missing this walk with you. And that's a good barometer for our lives. Are you growing in the fruits of the Spirit? Or are you not? Again, that does not change your identity if you're in Christ, but it gives you a good checkpoint. It gives us a good checkpoint to say, am I growing intentionally in my faith? Or am I being um, taken over uh, and finding my identity rather in the things of this world, even if they are maybe good things. Paul describes um, this unique uh, experience in his life. He, he says the end, of, the end of verse 14, zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Verse 15 says this, but when God, all right, but when God, if it were not for God's redemptive work in Paul's life, Paul would have continued probably in the same pattern that he had been in. 
But he says, but when God, who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that, or in order that I could preach him among the Gentiles, Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul's mission as an apostle. He has a very specific mission, and that's to go preach the good news to the Gentiles. Um, when when, um, when uh, Paul, after he is uh, like blinded by the light on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 9, um, God sends a vision to a man called Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to talk to Paul. And this is a Jesus follower, and he's going, why would I want to go talk to the person who's trying to persecute me and put me in jail? And, and God tells him, uh, I am setting apart this man, Saul, Paul, and he's going to proclaim my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. Paul's unique calling comes from God to preach Christ among the Gentiles. And, and he doesn't go to consult with anyone. He says in verse 17, I didn't go up to Jerusalem uh, to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and I came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Um, uh, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, I'm not lying in what I write to you. God is my witness. Basically, what Paul is saying is this. Um, God set me apart. God gave me a mission and a, uh, the ability to preach Christ to a people. And that calling was not determined by other people. It's not like the church came to him and they said, Paul, we want you to go do this. All right? Paul had lived his life in a, um, it, in a type of living where he goes, for example, when he goes to persecute the church up in Damascus, he goes to the people in Jerusalem. He says, can I go? He goes to the religious leaders and he says, can I go and can I do this? And he gets the green stamp from them. Paul's commission to be an, an apostle, a, a sent one. And the word apostle can mean a couple of different things, but, but in Paul's life, when he's talking about this, it refers to a, an exclusive group, people who had met the risen Lord and people who were commissioned by him for a specific task. Paul's task is to go preach to the Gentiles. And he doesn't go and, and say, all right, you guys tell me what to do. Now, he does go to say, oh, this is what God has told me to do. And the people in Jerusalem, the church leaders, they say, yes, go. All right, so there's this kind of interplay that happens here. He's not basing his calling upon them. He's basing his calling upon God, but he is looking to church leaders to say, do you see this in my life? This is what God has told me to do. And they say, yes, go. Paul is sent to, um, not to Jerusalem, but he goes out to Arabia, he comes back to Damascus, then he goes up to Jerusalem, talks to Peter, and then in verse 21, he goes about what God has told him to do, to, to, to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. And he goes to these regions of Syria and Cilicia. You can see Syria and Cilicia on this map. On the right side, you'll see Syria. It's north of Damascus. Cilicia is in that section there in the middle, up at the top. He's basically going back to his hometown region. And so for the next several years, over a decade, Paul goes back. He, he doesn't go to the Jerusalem churches and preach there. He goes back to his old stomping grounds, people whom he knew well, areas he was familiar with, and he begins preaching Christ. But notice what happens as a result of this. 
It says in verse 22, I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches. All right, the Judean churches are the places where um, the gospel had had spread to. That's kind of epicenter of the um, good news of Jesus. He remained personally unknown to the Judean churches. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So what these people hear, and they're quite a distance away, but what they're hearing through the grapevine is, man, that guy, that guy Saul, he was out for our necks. And they felt this pressure, and they felt this persecution. In fact, one of the reasons the gospel spreads from Jerusalem is because of persecution, religious persecution against followers of Jesus. And in the middle of this, these people here, they don't know him, but they keep hearing year after year after year, This guy, Saul, who once tried to really do us in, he's now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. This is what God does when he steps into a life. He takes someone, you might consider, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus in the first century, this this is a person you were trying to stay away from. This is a person you didn't want to be known by because you didn't know what they would do to you as a result of them knowing that you're a follower of Jesus. But in the midst of this, they, um, they hear, wow, God has incredibly changed this guy's life. Because that's what happens when God takes someone from the present evil age and he makes them a new cre- creation in Christ. He, he renews them in a different way. And notice what it says in verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. For Paul, it's all about God's glory. It's about God's name going forward. And he can't tell everyone, but to the people whom God has placed him in the middle of, he wants to be faithful to share the message of Jesus. All right, so we go from that section. We come to the end of that, and we can ask a couple of questions. Um, As he goes throughout these areas of Syria and Cilicia, um, j- just as by, by way of thinking about this, what drives our life? Uh, are, are we committed to the old way of living? Are we committed and want to jump in to the new identity that we have in Jesus? One of the things that occurs in Galatians is we're going to talk about different subgroups and different cultures. Jewish and Gentile are the two big ones. One of the things that we will find is that while Both of these are unique in and of themselves. The same gospel goes to both places, right? It's the same good news that goes to both people, even though we will find that their practice or their walking out may look a little bit differently. So let's look at this briefly in chapter 2, and we'll make some final remarks. So after 14 years, um, Paul goes up again to Jerusalem. So it's been quite some time since he's been to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, for Paul, was the center of the world, all right? That's where the temple was. That's where you gave your, your sacrifices, all these things. But for Paul, during this time, he stays up outside the land of Israel. He's preaching the good news of Jesus. He goes up to Jerusalem, but this time he goes with Barnabas. Now, Barnabas means um, son of encouragement is what his name means. And uh, he is one who, when Paul was kind of really struggling to have a conversation with the, the Jewish um, leaders of the church, people like uh, Peter and John, Barnabas, who was trusted by the people of that church, he says, Paul, come with me. I will take you to them myself. Uh, So 
Paul's going up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and he's taking a guy by the name of Titus along also. Um, he goes up, notice in verse 2, he's going up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So he's going up to talk to these church leaders, the, these people who were in like the, the, the mother church of the Christian faith. He's going up to tell them what he is sharing about Jesus throughout the world. And as he does that, um, he takes two people with him. He takes Barnabas, he takes Saul. Now it's interesting here because it says, um, but privately to those recognized as leaders, because he wants to make sure that he's, he's not running or have run the race in vain. He wants to make sure that what they're doing, while they're speaking to a Jewish audience predominantly, and he's speaking to a Gentile audience predominantly, he wants to make sure that they're on the same page. And he says this in verse 3, and this is going to begin to describe the conflict that will come in next week's teaching. He says, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he has with him Barnabas, a Jew, circumcised keeping the commands of the law. I mean, we know this about Paul. Paul was very passionate to, to observe much of his Jewish identity. He still went up for various feasts. He still gave offerings, we know, in Acts, in the later parts of Acts. Paul does not, like, disassociate himself from his Jewish identity, but here he's traveling with someone who is a brother in the Lord Jesus, but he's not Jewish. And not only that, he's not becoming Jewish in the sense of he's not being circumcised. And Paul says it this way, um, he was not compelled to be circumcised. And then there's an issue that arose because there's false brothers who were smuggled in, who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that they have in Christ to enslave them. Remember, what is at stake here is the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? The once-for-all atonement or payment for sin and a, re, and a redeemed relationship with God through Jesus in a right relationship with other people. For many people of this time, one of the ways that you would, you know, the, the early followers of Jesus were, were Jewish, and so they would assume, okay, you go ahead and you, you follow Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, absolutely. And then there would be this understanding amongst some, and Paul's addressing this. Okay, now that you're a follower of Jesus, you really need to become Jewish in order to partake in this. You know, it becomes this us versus them mentality. And that's not what's true at all. Because here you have Barnabas, an observant Jew, uh, who is traveling with Peter, or with Paul. And then you have Titus, who is a follower of Jesus, but he's not a Jew, and he's not becoming circumcised. In fact, he's not compelled to be circumcised because at stake in the gospel is that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. Because all people are far from God until they're brought near by God. Does that kind of make sense? So you have this um, conversation that will come in the next section of Galatians 2 and into Galatians 3, where Paul is going to say, hey, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Galatians 3, 28, 29. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. What Paul is talking about is that what defines a follower of Jesus is whether or not you are in Christ, whether or not you have a saving relationship through believing and trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. What does not matter with regard to justification is whether you are Jew or Gentile. And that's like foreign news to many at this time. 
Because they're thinking, wait, why, why wouldn't you go ahead and then become Jewish? Well, because the good news, it goes beyond that. When Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, he's not saying that Jewish distinctions are done away with or that Greek distinctions are done away with. He's saying as it pertains to being in Christ, those things are secondary. And Paul is going to be addressing this because what is at stake is the truth of the gospel and preserving that. And if the gospel is dependent upon now that you are a follower of Jesus, you have to become a Jew in order to be a good follower of Jesus, you've missed the point. Paul's essentially saying. And the church leaders recognize this too, because they don't force Titus, who is a Greek, um, to be compelled to be circumcised. In order, in other words, they don't force him to take upon himself Jewish expressions of um, faith as given through Moses. Verse 6 says, now from those recognized as important, and Paul says here, um, <laughs> I love the parenthetical, what they really were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. He says, these people added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised. I, I'd been entrusted for the gospel for people who are not right within Jerusalem and right within Judea. I'd been sent to the world because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whether you're Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For Paul, the truth of the gospel is what's at stake. The apostles here do not add to Paul's calling, but they do recognize God's anointing for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Um, James, Cephas, or, or uh, Peter, and John, who were the senior leaders of the church. They were the disciples who walked the closest with Jesus. Um, their word had incredible influence. Yet Paul recognizes that it is God who calls not man. And when God says, I want you to go, your call is to be obedient to that. That's not to say that the opinions of spiritual leaders are unimportant, but it is to say they do not replace the voice of God in someone's life, or the calling and the commission of God in someone's life. Paul is, um, in verses 6 through 10, as he's talking about this, one of the things Paul's trying to do is um, make the statement known that he is not creating his own religion, all right? He's not calling, hey, now this is the church according to Paul. Paul is fi finding his identity in Christ with his Jewish brothers and sisters, just like he's finding his identity in Christ with his Gentile brothers and sisters. Paul is not setting apart a whole new movement. He is following the leading of God, and God is uniting together both Jew and Gentile to become a multi-ethnic community in the Messiah. One of the incredible things um, that I experienced years ago as I was on a trip to North Africa, as we were involved with, a, um, with teaching in, in, in a local congregation there, and they're made up of a whole bunch of different nationalities. You know, you have some from this country. I'm being vague for security reasons, but you have some from this country. You have some from the West. You have some from this country. You have some from this background. You have some from this background. What you had in that congregation was a whole beautiful collage of Jesus followers who had come from every walk of life. That also creates a lot of problems, by the way, because this person grows up this way, and this person grows up this way, 
and this person grows up this way. And those ways aren't necessarily bad. What binds them together, though, is not their tradition. What binds them together is not their experience or their knowledge. What binds every one of us together is that we are in Christ. Because if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And we have a common heritage that comes from our faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Paul's trying to underscore this, th this point. I'm not creating my own thing here. Rather, I'm going to people who need to hear the message of Jesus. Specifically, God has sent me to the Gentiles. You don't have to be a Jewish to be, you don't have to be Jewish to be a follower of Jesus, i.e. Titus. God's work, however, and this is a good balance here, God's work is not finished with the Jewish people. Romans 10 and 11 talk about that. But it's much larger than the Jewish nation. Um, and this is something that's a part of the Hebrew scriptures. For example, in Psalm 117, it says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Right? This isn't just to the Jewish people. It's praise the Lord, all nations. The word there is the word goin. Glorify him, all peoples. For his faithful love to us is great. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. So, um, Paul goes back to the church in Jerusalem, and they have a conversation. And these people, recognized as pillars, these people on, on whom there was some, some authority and some leadership given to them by the Lord, Jesus, they acknowledged God's grace that had been given me. Verse uh, 9 says, and they gave to him the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas. The right hand of fellowship is this. I forgot to show you this photo. This is a Roman street in Tarsus, uh, where Paul's from. Um, here's the right hand of fellowship. Um, in Roman times, uh, this is a close-up of a mural. And uh, in Roman times, um, people would shake hands to say, hello, how are you doing? They'd shake hands to say, it's good to see you. I'll see you later. We don't really do that now. We do the, like, the elbow or the knuckle or the air or whatever it is you do. Um, but in Roman society, the joining of the right hands was used for meeting and parting. It's also used to signify harmony, affinity, friendship, and loyalty. So there's this, there's this rift that's growing within this church. It's like, um, there, there's people saying, no, you have to become this in order to be justified by Christ. And Paul comes to these church leaders, and in Acts 15, they have this out fully as a whole apostolic council. Um, but they give him the right hand of fellowship. And in doing so, what they're saying is, we're in this together. Why? Because our identity is the same. We were people who were bought by the blood of Christ. We've been made new in Christ through his death and resurrection. And because of that, we have a new identity and our calling is to seek him first, regardless of whether we're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Each of those identities in the first century have, have certain responsibilities that come with them. But for Paul... What matters most is whether you're in Christ, and that's what joins you together. Um, quick story about um, one way I experienced this in my life. 
um, years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, and we're in um, Jordan on, on the east side of the, um, the Jordan River. And we, we're in a place called Wadi Arnon. And Wadi Arnon, oh, Wadi is basically a dry riverbed, but sometimes that dry riverbed becomes a very wet riverbed. And we're headed uh, with our group, about 30, 35 people. We're, we're on an excursion to essentially hike up this water river fall type thing. All right? it's, a, it's, a, it's a valley and a canyon that you walk up. And so some of it you're just walking through. It's like six inches deep, no big deal. We've got our sandals on and we're walking up. But then we hit a part where the water gets higher. And then we hit a part where at one point in time, there's a rope, we're, we're wearing life jackets, but there's a rope um, that we are holding onto. We're pulling ourselves through a pool of water because the water's like we're going upstream. We're pulling ourselves through the pool of water and we're helping one another climb up the next rock face in order to go further and further up this wadi. Um, we get quite a ways up there. And we had a group of like, um, like seniors in high school. There were a couple guys there who were you know, like young, fit, um, full of energy, seniors in high school. We're in our 20s. We had some 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60-year-olds on this trip. And, and this is the first thing we had done together as a group. And we're hiking up this water um, area. And we had to do this together. Everything from helping one another, grab a hand to pull someone up, um, to making sure someone didn't fall, to making sure that someone didn't drown, all this kind of stuff. We're doing this together. We come to the end of this hike, and it had been brutal. Like, we're all tired, and we still have to turn around and go back. But as we're talking, I don't remember the whole devotional, but I remember my friend George, who's leading the trip. George is a, is a pastor at uh, Holland Heights CRC. Uh, he, he's kind of uh, later in life, he's doing a couple different things, but he's been a pastor there for years. An incredible man of God, incredible student of the text. He, he says, Jeremy, come here. He knew I was a pastor. He knew I was a pastor at a Baptist church. He goes, come here, stand back to back with me. I said, okay, you know, I'm in the center of this group. I don't want to be in the center of the group. And he begins to talk about how we are in this together. Here he is. He comes from one tradition, okay? I come from another tradition, are there good reasons we come from different traditions? Yeah, we could talk about those. But what unites us more than the fact that he's a CRC pastor and the fact that I'm a Baptist pastor, what unites us more is that we are both in Christ. And he says, look, you and me, we have to be back to back because we are against an enemy. We're against an adversary who wants to change the gospel and to make it something more than what it is. We're in this together. And so we're, we're, we're standing there. And when you put two people back to back, I have full vision to see this way. He has full vision to see this way. And the picture is this. Friends, we all need someone at our back. I think Paul goes back to these church leaders and he says, like, we need to be together on this. And they say, absolutely. We're going to give you the right hand of fellowship. And by the way, we're in this together because what matters most is the gospel. Certainly, we can have the theological conversations, and we do. We can have the tradition conversations, and we do. But what unites us more than anything is what is actually most important, that you and I, we're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. And what should bring us together is much stronger than the things that should divide us. Amen? This was going on at the first century. There's people that Paul is writing to, and he's saying, I'm amazed that you're turning away from the thing that actually brings you to God. Don't do that. 
We are in this together. And he's going to fight a very, very important theological battle in the next couple verses. But it all comes from this. Hey, you're over there, you're you, and I'm me. And Paul is saying, we are in this together. One quick thing while I close. God has called each one of us to speak into the lives of others. For Paul, he said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you to kings. I'm going to send you to the Jewish people. That was part of Paul's commissioning. Who has God placed in your life? Who is God sending you to? Whom are you going to speak the truth of God's word in the amazing glory of the gospel to in your life this week? Because who you're going to speak to and speak with is probably different than who I am going to speak with. Which is why, my friend, we need to be together on the gospel. Because when the gospel is right, we can work out the differences as we go. Who is God calling you to share Christ with? And then with this, how can I stand with you? I don't know what your life looks like. But if there's a way I or our elders or our pastors or people in your community groups or people whom you're going to talk with in a couple minutes, if you need prayer or encouragement or someone to stand back to back with, ask. Ask because the gospel matters. I'm privileged to stand with you. And if there's any way I can stand with you better, send me an email. Give me a call. I would love to be able to do that because God's purposes in this world are so important, not only for our lives, but for the lives of people who are far from God. Would you pray with me, please? God, whether we gather in person, whether we gather online, we stand together in the truth of the gospel that there is only one way, only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus our Savior, who died and who was buried and who was raised and who paid for our sins to make us right again before you. God, show us anew what it means to walk in this very fundamental truth that we are in Christ. Regardless of the divisions that exist in our world today, and Lord, there are so many of them, Focus our hearts and our minds and our attention and our emotions and our mind upon that which matters most. May we leave behind the things of this world so that we can pursue you and so that the Holy Spirit can live through us to the glory of God the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Would you stand with me, please? May the love of God go with you and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you as you serve Christ this week. Whatever your situation looks like, know that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In rest, in work, and live to his honor and to his glory in that known identity. Amen? Amen. If we can serve you in any way, please let us know. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. 
If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.